For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, who indeed are our co-hosts. As always. Hello, you guys. And they're my co-hosts. <laughs> they're our co-hosts. <laughs> Both we're are. yours. We're everyone's co-hosts. We're, we're your co-hosts in this thing called life. That's right. We're all, we're all on the same boat, us, the listeners, and the guests. This week's guest, Josh Yaffa. Who is Josh Yaffa? Uh, you guys know Josh Yaffa's work? Well, he is currently, uh, I believe, the Russia correspondent for uh, New Yorker. Um, he has lived in Moscow for about eight years. He wrote uh, for Times Magazine um, before that. But uh, it's a pretty, like, he was writing a profile of the Ukrainian president um, in the middle, uh, like uh, the Trump stuff had not happened until he was halfway through the profile. So uh, a theme of this interview is um, all of the things you find yourself in the center of um, by reporting from uh, Russia and Ukraine right now. I'd say it's an interesting and challenging time to report from Russia at this current juncture. Um, he also has a book out uh, about that same topic. It's called uh, Between Two Fires. Did you did you do this one remotely with him in Russia? Uh, no, it was like I basically, you know, it's weird. It speaks to our phobia of Russia since this was this was a remote interview. But I really wanted to catch him while he was still in America. He was uh, at a studio on the UC Berkeley campus, and there was something about like I I don't know about uh, this show calling into Russia. We'll we'll see about it's like, that. Like got to get him while he's on American soil. Oh, <laughs> you know, get the podcast tapped or anything. Um, if you are trying to keep in touch with the people back in your life, in the country you're from, when you're living somewhere far, far away, and there's no better place to start a newsletter, even a modest one, than MailChimp. They make it easy. It's affordable. What is stopping you? Thanks, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Josh Yaffa. Welcome, uh, Josh Yaffa. Thanks for having me. You are on tour right now uh, for a book that you wrote about Russia, and I believe you're going back to Moscow tomorrow. Is that right? This week? That's right. Tonight, actually. You are officially my last uh, stop on what has been a few weeks of events and talks on the like. 
So let's start there. How long have you lived in Moscow? Uh, seven, almost eight years. What? Where was your life at when you touched down in Moscow seven to eight years ago? So my whole story with Russia started long before that. And uh, you could say I'm like a Russia person before I'm a journalist, which interestingly, and we can talk about this a bit later if you like, that it seems most of my colleagues in the Western press corps in Moscow, people who write for American or European newspapers and magazines from Russia, that's true for them too, that we got into Russia first for whatever reason, learned the language, started coming to the place, and only then later got into journalism. And that's definitely true in my case. So it wasn't totally a random decision when I got on a plane at the beginning of 2012 and flew to Moscow. I had studied Russian in college, which that was a random choice. People ask me all the time why I got into Russian. I don't really have a satisfying answer for myself or for them about why that was the case, just one of those whims of a college student. So I started studying the language and then eventually came to Russia on a study abroad program and and got into it as I was doing it. And, and the obsession kind of grew the more I saw and the more I learned. So spoke fairly decent Russian. I spent some time after college in Moscow bumming around and, and having fun in a kind of wild early 2000s, early Putin Moscow and came back to New York. And it was in 2012 when I decided I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent or at least try to do that. And so Russia was the obvious place to go. I mean, of all the places in the world, without even really having to think about it, of course, I would go to the place that I knew and where I spoke the language and had a bit of a leg up in trying to understand how to do journalism from there. So for you, when you turned that corner from being like a college Russia guy to someone who is actually um, reporting on Russia. Like, how did your relationship with Russia change when you became a full-time Russian journalist who has a business card that says, basically, this is what I do. I go around reporting on Russia. I think I got to know the place much better, frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. The best part about journalism for me, I've always loved reporting more than writing. And I feel like, I was drawn to journalism almost accidentally as a way of sating curiosities that existed outside of journalism, right? Like these were things I was interested in anyway. So like, why not do that for a living uh, if you can? And so I've just gotten to understand so many different aspects of the country and certainly places. I've never understood or seen Russia with such geographic diversity as I've been able to as a journalist going to the Far East or parts of uh, remote Siberia, the Caucasus, Chechnya, all these places that I wouldn't have gone to or didn't go to when I was studying Russia as a student and even exploring Russia kind of as a post-student. And I guess I just realized how much my academic study of Russia still left whole spheres of knowledge of what the place actually is like and feels like unknown by me. When you were doing your first reporting in Russia, you've got the basis of the language, You've got your interest. It's a passion. When you first started actually like interviewing people and asking questions that uh, potentially, I would say a unifying theme of your journalism is uh, questions that people do not want to answer. You know, what were your initial experiences like that? You know, I feel like a lot of people have been on the show were like, well, I worked uh, at a small town newspaper in the Midwest. And that's a very different landing path 
for the first time you land the airplane uh, than asking people, say, in Russian security services. Yeah, I I guess I should go back a little bit and say I did go uh, to journalism school. I went to to Columbia and fairly or not, I guess I would say unfairly, journalism schools get a bad rap and I understand all the reasons why, but I had a a great experience there. And uh, Well, give us the good, it's true, it is true if you listen to this show, I would say there's three negative sentiments about journalism school for every positive sentiment. So like... In a nutshell. And that might actually even be be true in my graduating class. Okay, so it's accurate then. Um, we're getting an accurate cross-spectrum of the graduate classes of journalism schools. But for someone who liked it, like, what did you like? What did you take from it? So I was one of these people who didn't know anything about journalism and had no experience with it when I arrived uh, at journalism school. And I think that's already the first factor that tends to sort out people's experiences. The people who had worked as journalists before, people who had worked at alt-weeklies or smaller papers and then came to journalism school, I think felt more underwhelmed by the experience where I was uh, delightfully overwhelmed by everything I was learning. And I also just got really lucky with particular teachers. The very first class I had was taught by this wonderful journalist, Barry Birak, who had won a Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times and Pakistan and Afghanistan, and was not just an extraordinarily diligent uh, professional, but also just a a fundamentally decent human being. And, And he made a really strong impression on me. There was another teacher of mine, John Bennett, who was an editor at The New Yorker. We became very close. And in fact, fast forward many years, he became my first editor at The New Yorker. And in fact, also did an edit of this book. But I just really liked the kind of crafty uh, vocational aspect of journalism school, right? Like the parts I liked the most were just like doing the thing, you know, we're just like changing car mufflers here or something. And I really liked approaching journalism that way and it made it feel understandable and and achievable in a way that I wasn't sure you know if I'd really be able to figure it out or do it going in but but people like Barry Birak or John Bennett showed that it's essentially a kind of craft knowledge that if you you know pay attention and repeat the motions enough times you'll get the hang of it so what were you doing right before journalism school that this was welcome to you in a way that it was unwelcome to the people who'd been practicing journalism professionally beforehand? <laughs> so what I was literally doing right before journalism school was um, selling cheese at Murray's Cheese Shop on Bleecker Street, um, <laughs> I, uh, uh, a job I loved but was um, happy to transition out of to, to go to uh, journalism school. Uh, I'd come back to New York after spending almost, I guess, two years in and out of Moscow after college. And I came back to New York, you know, going even back before that. In college, I had studied more straightforward international affairs, diplomacy type things in addition to Russian. And that was kind of my trajectory or what I thought it would be. And some of the work I did in Moscow after college was connected to kind of international programs and uh, a bit of stuff funded by the State Department working with Russian scientists. And I was kind of on that track before I got a bit disillusioned or just frankly bored with it. And journalism was definitely not boring. Uh, It was really exciting in a way that captivated me from the very beginning. What happened when you tried to apply uh, Columbia Journalism School craft rules to actually working in the field in Russia. I mean, I even think about things like, um, you know, there's this sort of system of like on the record, off the record that exists in America. 
like, is there even like a translation for on the record, off the record? Do people <laughs> even have these kinds of concepts who you're talking to? Yeah, sure. They say off the record. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, enter the Russian from, from uh, <laughs> it's all, the, the it's English. It's all one word, <laughs> off a record. Right. Um, you know, it's a good question. I don't know. You know, despite everything I just said about journalism school teaching you this very vocational, craft-based approach to journalism, at the end of the day, it's an art, not a science. And there is no real formula for it, as you know. And I'm not quite sure, actually, that journalism school was meant to impart a kind of rigid, like, checklist approach mm. to journalism. Like, first ask this question, then ask that question. But it was people like Barry Birak or John Bennett, who I mentioned, who who imparted this lesson of just follow your curiosity and be a decent human being. And if you sort of do that in a sustained way, odds are people will open up to you and you'll find out interesting things. And that, I guess, has been my MO ever since. You know, I do, of course, prepare for interviews and and try and read around the subject as much as I can if it's someone who's quasi-famous read other interviews they've done. But at the same time, I have a pretty limited or or pretty shallow list of prepared questions when I go in, and that's often the case. I'm often following my curiosity and intuition more than I'm acting from a checklist. I don't know if that's just an excuse for laziness or what, um, but I think this notion of just being open to anything and being genuinely curious about the subject, right? I guess maybe that's the thing I've discovered. It's hard for me to do the job. One, I just don't like it as much. And and two, I think I'm not as good at it if it's something I'm not interested in myself. And so if you're driven by your own curiosity and you want to be asking these questions and finding out this information, even if it wasn't for a job, that seems to do much of the trick. And people, I think, pick up on that and, and respond to it. And also especially in a place like Russia, right, where there's a lot of sensitivity around what people might tell you. And when they do open up to you, there's a lot of trust there and you better not abuse it or mishandle it because you could really put people in danger. Just being a a decent person and, and demonstrating that decency also goes a long way. You know, journalists in Russia often get a bad rap, which is too bad because the profession is so under threat there, right? But there's this image of journalists as really kind of sneaky, conniving, self-interested people always looking for the scoop or the sensational story who might, you know, misquote you or or blow up your words to try and make the story, you know, much bigger than it is. And so a lot of people have that kind of ingrained suspicion when they hear the word journalist or that a journalist wants to talk to them. So I try to, I guess I try to do something a little different, which um, thankfully oftentimes people do respond to. Let's talk about that idea of uh, curiosity. When you're touching down in a country that is not only not the country of your birth, but has this rich, swirling media circus, psychedelic kaleidoscope, how do you find out what interests you within that? Like, maybe I'm asking, like, what's your Russian language media diet like? How do you get your ideas and how do you find your people within Russia? You know, I think I had a really lucky evolution of my journalistic career in in Russia. So when I touched down in 2012, and I should say, you know, sometimes I do go back to Columbia or other journalism schools and narrate this career path. And I always say, you know, buyer beware, essentially. I don't know how applicable or, or much I would offer this up as advice, but I was working at a magazine in New York, Foreign Affairs, as an editor when I had this itch to 
upend my life and try and become a foreign correspondent. And I quit that job with no real plan other than buying a one-way ticket to Moscow. But it turned out to be an extraordinarily lucky, if crazy, idea because quickly upon arrival in Moscow, I was offered the job largely out of kind of panic on behalf of The Economist and its bureau chief there. But the longtime bureau chief of The Economist in Moscow was going on book leave to write a book of his own, and they needed someone ASAP, like yesterday, to fill in for them. And uh, just by being in the right place at the right time, I like booked that one-way plane ticket at the very lucky week to show up in Moscow when precisely they were urgently needed someone. I was able to get the job uh, filling in for a year. And so my first job in journalism in Moscow was for The Economist. And that was, I think, in hindsight, exactly the right pace and exactly the right style of journalism. You have to write once a week. I don't think I could have survived the daily paper grind. I just don't have journalistic metabolism that's that fast. I really admire and am awe of people who can write not just one story a day, but now newspaper reporters are writing you know, two, three stories a day and constantly updating them. I think my brain would have quickly short-circuited at that pace. But a week, that kept me following what was happening, and it also was a way that forced me to introduce myself to the main players to kind of understand the architecture, constellation of power and politics in and out of government, people in the Kremlin, the opposition, get a sense of the lay of the land of business, civil society, culture, right? I just like had to have my finger on the pulse, as it were, in order to do that job week by week. And over the course of the year, it just forced me to introduce myself to a bunch of people who gave me a lay of the land and who later I would come back to and often in often cases for further advice about if I want to go deeper on this or that subject, I sort of understood on a lot of topics who were the entry points and, and who were the experts. So what is The Economist looking for in Russia as compared to New York Times Magazine or New Yorker who you've written for later? What is the implicit, uh, this is what you need to capture about Russia? I always thought it was telling that at headquarters, editors and writers for The Economist call it the paper. No one calls it the the magazine. And even though it comes out once a week, and I think by all you know fair understandings of the word, at least in American English, it's a magazine, the notion that they call it a paper gets at its mission, which it, it views itself as doing something kind of newspaperly, a kind of digest that doesn't exist at this point really anywhere else in the world of what's new and important and interesting that week. So it is really news driven. And you should be following stories, not necessarily repeatedly week in and week out, right? But you should be kind of tracking big themes and return to them over the course of your reporting, which is very different than what, uh, say, the New York Times Magazine or the New Yorker does in its print edition, where you're really going deep on one subject. And then you really probably aren't returning to it for a long time or ever, right? Because you've just done this big thing and you've said everything there is to say for a long while on that subject. And so you're done, you move on and you're interested in new characters, new themes, new stories. But The Economist, more akin to a newspaper, you should really be tracking stories over time. When I got to Moscow in February 2012, it was sort of toward the tail end of what had been a season of protest going back to winter of 2011 that first grew out of a response to fraudulent parliamentary elections and then to Putin's attempt to return to the Kremlin as president. Ultimately successful, there were elections in the spring of that year. So there was this 
season of protest that a lot of people, of course, were were covering. That was the main political story coming out of Russia. But, you know, I remember the job being to stay on top of that and return to it, if not necessarily week by week, then to kind of check in periodically and see what's happening with the major players. What's the trajectory of that story? Where is the momentum? So it forced me to stay on top of things more than a place like The New Yorker, where you really indulge yourself on on one story and, and can put on blinders to what's going on uh, in the rest of Russia. There's a story of yours that I was actually pretty surprised to see is almost five years old now, um, and I would have said it was more recent, um, about a Russian soldier who, wow, it's hard to even summarize this story, but disappeared into the chaos of the uh, Ukrainian-Russian border. Would that be a fair way to summarize the article? Yeah, his name was Pyotr uh, Khachlov. Uh, I think he was about 19 when I wrote the story and the events uh, therein transpired. So at the time, in the summer of 2014, Russia had launched this kind of undeclared or, or unacknowledged yet totally obvious war in eastern Ukraine where it was propping up would-be separatist, uh, rebel kind of breakaway state, but that was really thoroughly a, a Russian production. And Russia was sending a lot of its normal acknowledged military forces to exercises on the Russian side of the border with Ukraine, the notion being then in the cover of night or with just the chaos of having all of these forces down on the border, some of them would cross over and do military operations in Ukraine, a way of kind of getting Russian forces into Ukraine without announcing a full-on invasion. And so this guy, Pyotr, was one of those who was sent down to southern Russia on these exercises and then disappeared uh, and only reappeared later in Ukrainian custody on the Ukrainian side of the border, having been captured by the Ukrainian security services. And it was just unclear the circumstances by which he ended up in Ukraine and making his story all the more dramatic and tragic, really, was that he was an orphan. He grew up in an orphanage, the only person really who knew about him or cared about him was his brother back in Russia. So the story started out for me really reporting with his brother and his search for what happened to his younger brother and how he could get him out of Ukraine. The thing that struck me as I was rereading this, which you actually just did in real time there, but you have to do in the article is in addition to finding a missing orphan, you have to summarize the entire incredibly complex conflict that he disappeared into. And I'm wondering, like, I mean, it's a long article. It's over 8,000 words. But in terms of, like, summarizing what you just summarized, you have to get a lot down in a couple paragraphs. So I'm wondering, when you're trying to situate a very close-focused human story within a very broad, complex conflict, like... How do you even get an official take? Like, this is the New York Times Magazine's one-paragraph take on what what is Donetsk? What is the uh, Russian rebel cause in Ukraine? And you have, a, like, two or three sentences. Like, how, how do you think about moments like that? Especially writing for an American audience who maybe is hearing about this for the first time. I guess the secret is, and, and I'm happy to talk about this after the fact, because I think the secret is in the moment to, to not um, give it such import or, mm. or weight, to, th- to think of writing some kind of canonical version that this is the institution's you know, official summary of this incredibly complicated conflict. And, and I don't think of myself as writing some kind of uh, 
you know, definitional Wikipedia version of history that will then be referred to uh, right. by future generations. I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm exactly winging it, but, you know, I think there's actually this advice, was it on your show or elsewhere, that I heard Michael Lewis give where, and I could just be getting it a bit wrong, but the way I remember it and have internalized it for myself is that he talks about starting his morning when he's writing by reading all of his notes and, and getting totally kind of absorbed by all his information and reporting, but then leaving that aside, like physically putting it in a different room and then sitting down to write just from memory. And I find something like that helps when you have to do something like, you know, explain the origins of this separatist or would-be separatist conflict in eastern Ukraine and what Russia has done and is doing and is also denying. And to get all of that into an understandable two or three sentences or two or three paragraphs, I find that it's better to do that from memory, essentially, right? To not have all this reporting and data in front of you to just go into storytelling mode and just how off, not exactly off the top of my head, right? Because it's it's based on a body of knowledge and a body of reporting, but to just, how would I tell that for example, like I just told it to you, right? Like what works in conversation so often works uh, in writing. Do you find that you have to prune back a lot of uh, potential branches in that pursuit? Uh, definitely. I mean, that story, you know, before it was 8,000 words, it was probably 15,000 words and, and a lot more context about the war. And, and And maybe I felt overly responsible for narrating a lot of history and larger political context. Oftentimes, editors are smart about understanding how much the reader needs in order to make sense of the narrative, but you actually don't need to overdo it. And the narrative is the thing that the reader wants and is going to keep the story moving forward. You only need as much history and context as is required to have that narrative just make sense. And you need to do no, no more than that. So I often do go deeper into context than uh, is ultimately necessary. But I guess that's a, a healthy and normal part of the writing and, and editing process. Well, I was thinking, you know, recently you wrote that story about, oh, God, I'm going to have to pronounce his name, uh, the president of Ukraine. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Zelensky. Um, and pretty deep into the article, like more than halfway through, we start to address the guy who previously ran Ukraine's National Bank and basically had it seized from him and his relationship with Zelensky. And right. it's fascinating, and I, I totally get how it's pretty central to you know how this person is thought about within Ukraine. There's also a 5,000-word version of that article that just omits that entire thread I'm curious, going into these stories, how much you know about how big the aperture is going to be opened. Um, in the case of the Zelensky story, obviously the aperture just gets completely smashed um, by the Trump story merging into it. But even before that, how many of those like major, this is going to be a thousand words of this article kinds of threads um, do you take in and out of a story? Yeah, I mean, as you say, the Zelensky story is kind of a strange and definitely outlier case because the aperture was completely uh, blown up, as you rightly say, by Trump. I started that story over the summer before we knew much of anything, before the whistleblower complaint had come to light and long before there were any kinds of hearings in Congress with people testifying to what had gone on with Giuliani 
and others and before we knew anything about the July 25th phone call. So I thought I was writing a piece, a kind of postmodern fable about a man who emerges from the television screen, who played the president on television, as Zelensky did in this long-running, very popular show in Ukraine, to then step out of the television screen and become president in real life. And what's that like? What's that like when a comedian and many people from his comedy troupe take the reins of power and start running a country for real? That was my initial conception um, of the piece. Just to get it in here now, I would read an entire other article about Russian competitive sketch comedy. (laughs) <laughs> what is it called kvn uh, K- kvn yeah it's totally cheesy uh but delightful and and an intrinsic and um i think yeah telling window in, into the culture I how watched, much kvn uh, did you watch preparing yeah for that m- article? M- more kvn than than would allow me to go back and write that article that you've just requested i think i'm i'm tapped out on kvn for the moment how how far does the history of zelyansky doing competitive sketch comedy go back on like YouTube? Like, does it, are, are there high school performances that were filmed? No, uh, not the least that I found though. Perhaps some listeners can unearth that. I talked to people who were in his comedy troupe from the nineties, going back to high school. I even went actually to his high school in uh, Ukraine and the current director of the school was a teacher of Zelensky's back in the nineties. And they actually started out with a teacher versus student high school KVN league. So she actually was a competitor of Zelensky's back in the 90s. She lost. Uh, So Zelensky's glory in the genre started early. So there's lots of people who remember him as a contestant back in in the day. But as far as YouTube archive goes, I was it was really into the early or mid 2000s when you start getting a rich but from then on pretty consistent archive of his comedy. Why do people talk to you? Um, like in these stories, every single time someone opens their mouth, I'm like, don't do it. It's going to end badly. <laughs> like, I guess most reporters that I've talked to in America, you could say, well, you know, participating in the story is like a mixed bag. In a lot of these cases, like when you're reporting on the security services in Russia, I'm just like anyone who ans- who talks to this guy is an idiot. This is very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I I try not to overthink that, lest I psych myself out from even making the the phone call. <laughs> yeah, but like to go through a few stories quickly, like in the case of Piotr, the missing soldier, you know, his brother back in Russia was really desperate and was getting the total runaround from the Russian military, right. from the Russian prosecutor's office. Like, there's nobody who was interested whatsoever in finding this guy's brother and bringing him back from this really murky situation. He was in, in a position so, to take a risk. He wasn't, sure. he didn't have a lot to lose. And and he saw in me in a way that made me uncomfortable. And I tried to dissuade him of this notion, but he saw in me someone who could, you know, by virtue of being an American who is, you know, seen as omnipotent in some way could help bring his brother back. I tried to tell him that's not really, you know, what I'm capable of doing here, but let me hear your story anyway. But that was his motive. You know, the story I think you're alluding to about this kind of interscene war between the interior ministry in Russia and the FSB, the main security service, the successor agency to the KGB, is actually a pretty familiar story that it happens, I think, a lot in America and everywhere about why one side, especially in a conflict, wants to talk. So in mm. this war between the interior ministry and the FSB, the interior ministry guys were really losing. Their backs were against the wall. Uh, the story I wrote is about one of them, the, the boss of this anti-corruption unit in the interior ministry, had been arrested and put on trial and was facing 
I think, 20 years or something in prison. And his deputy, who was his longtime friend from that same interior ministry unit, had also been arrested. And he had committed suicide, in fact, in a really murky way that many people thought wasn't suicide at all while he was being held in pretrial detention. And this interior ministry unit had really been decimated in this clan war, this under the rug, you know, bureaucratic war with the FSB. And so then it becomes understandable in the way it works here in lots of places, why people close to that interior ministry unit might be inclined to talk, and especially why friends and family of this guy who died in custody, Boris Kolesnikov, why they would be inclined to talk for the same reasons why people talk all over the place, right? They felt like their cause wasn't being advanced or heard in the main arena. So maybe doing it, one, it's just a way to air some frustration and angst. And two, maybe by moving the conversation into a different arena, who knows if it's not working for you in the existing one? Well, it's not, there's no, you know, I'm not sure that an article in the English language press does anything for you in a, you know, Russian government clan war back in Moscow. But nonetheless, why not talk to this journalist who who shows up and just sort of earnestly, I hope, as uh, I was able to telegraph, wants to understand uh, what happened. Surely things couldn't get worse. Perhaps that was the logic. So do you think that people who do come to you in these situations, whether it's the orphan's brother or even Zelensky, are in some ways sort of playing their case in the American press or attempting to seek something out of the American audience um, by agreeing to participate in a feature? Right. You know, I think what does work, and that is especially true for the book, uh, which we can talk about a bit, which had its own kind of process and logic behind it in terms of how and why I think people agreed to be uh, subjects and characters in it. There aren't many places in the Russian journalistic ecosystem to go to get a fair hearing, I guess, right? Mm. And that that's one of the unfortunate realities of a journalistic environment in Russia that has been, you know, put under so much pressure and squelched before it really had a chance to even come into its own after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But media is really polarized in Russia. There are all these state-run or state-controlled outlets, all the main television channels, some of the biggest uh, papers and, and online resources have been effectively taken over by the state, or at least by interests close to or sympathetic to the state. So independent media is under a lot of pressure. And those outlets that have survived and do continue to do really brave, important, fascinating work, a lot of them have kind of by default this understandable confrontational or oppositionist edge to them, right? Because they've been forced into that corner by the circumstances in which they operate. So there aren't a lot of places if you're kind of of the system, but not a total full-fledged supporter of it or have your doubts or have some subtleties you'd like to discuss. There aren't a lot of places to go to air out those subtleties and and contradictions and and nuances. And I'm not necessarily saying I'm some perfect like uh, factotum in that uh, regard. But I think when it comes to the book, there were some people who actually, it turns out, were interested in in talking through some of the choices and dilemmas and compromises they've made. And I was someone who was going to sit there and listen to them 
without judgment and kind of listen to why, for example, they might have made some choice in favor of the state, as it were, but here's how they also try and get around the state and eke out a little space of freedom for themselves. I don't know if those are things, there's no space to talk about that, perhaps, in the Russian media. And again, not that I offered something singularly useful or beneficial to them because of who I am, but just maybe structurally, right? Talking to an American journalist who's outside the hothouse pressurized dynamics of Russia media and politics uh, allowed for a different conversation. It's funny to think of um, the New Yorker as like a uh, central, a centrism between (laughs) the uh, poles of Russian state media and opposition media. But like in the context of your book, I kind of get that. Like almost all the people that you chose to talk to are people that are performing some kind of compromise within the overall system that is Russia. Right. And I think the way, or at least I would imagine it, it's not that I or the New Yorker represent a kind of centrist compromise between those two poles. It's rather that I exist just outside of them, right? It's like I'm not anywhere on that spectrum. And so because oftentimes the subjects and characters of my reporting in my book don't really know where to place me it effectively maybe is the same thing as kind of being some, you know, centrist medium. But but in my mind, it's something different. I'm just not placeable on that spectrum. Well, it's almost like a sense of like the alien um, right. like from a different uh, solar system. But that distance as an American journalist, has that changed at all during the Trump era? Um is people's impression of like what an American journalist is changing? Yes, though I think slower than it is back home. In other words, the way that the media ecosystem has changed or been forced to change or react in the age of Trump, those changes haven't been noticed or internalized or processed in real time in a place like Russia. For better or worse, there still is a notion of American journalism, especially in some quarters in Russia and liberal quarters or opposition, quasi-opposition quarters, right? There's a kind of almost bygone romantic notion of American uh, journalism that that's um, very sweet and, and uh, even inspiring to observe. So in a way, a place like The New Yorker or New York Times, Washington Post, right? Those names still carry institutional weight in a way that perhaps they oftentimes don't in the American conversation, or they've just been like absorbed by all of the noise and rancor and uh, toxicity of the American political and, and media conversation. It's my sense that, you know, when someone gets a call from the New York Times, means something uh, in Russia still. What is your relationship with uh, Russian language journalists like? Some of my closest friends are, are Russian journalists, and I have a bottomless uh, admiration uh, for the work they do. The space for independent journalism has, of course, shrunk in Russia precipitously over the past years, and not that it was ever so uh, vast to begin with. But there's a number of outlets hanging on that do really intrepid, important, path-breaking work. And it's important to remember that you know a lot of what we know in detail about the precise ways that Russia tried to influence or meddle in the 2016 election, a lot of that reporting actually was done first by Russian journalists, especially on stuff like the troll farms in St. Petersburg and some of the online Facebook 
manipulations. A lot of that work was done by Russian journalists first and only then picked up by American ones. So there are people doing really good work that, you know, maybe we don't always recognize or give credit to by imagining understandably Russian journalism as this field under, you know, so much, you know, danger and threat that they couldn't even, you know, possibly produce good work, but they do. And that's important to remember that. So, and I also find that Russian journalists, my friends especially, are incredibly generous uh, with their reporting, with their sources and ideas. And a lot of the stories that I do wouldn't be possible if I wasn't getting, you know, phone numbers maybe along the way from my friends and colleagues uh, among Russian journalists or just tips and ideas about where to look and things to read. So uh, those are incredibly enjoyable and fruitful relationships. Are you read within Russia? And like, do your articles get translated and republished anywhere? There is this website that does Russian language translations of foreign media about Russia. I don't know how read that website is, but it mm. does exist. And, and not every piece of mine is translated. I think perhaps, you know, understandably, the translators aren't particularly eager to take on the, uh, you know, seven or 8,000 word feature uh, <laughs> in the New Yorker. Yeah. Um, but overall, you know, I, I find that uh, there is this Moscow and maybe St. Petersburg intelligentsia core of people who read something like The New Yorker and are definitely aware of what's being written in a place like The New York Times, at least like the major stories or the major stories as concerning Russia. And when a place like The Times does break news as concerns Russia, that does filter back to Russia and some of those independent outlets will pick up on the story and and report what the Times have reported or or push it forward with their own additional reporting. You know, some of the more, I don't know if esoteric is the right word, but stuff that's off news that I've done for The New Yorker, like when I wrote a whole piece about my apartment building in Moscow, or when I wrote a piece about this cardiologist turned writer in this town of Tarusa outside of Moscow. I don't know if those are the sorts of pieces that penetrate the Russian media environment for understandable reasons, I guess. Um, But uh, stuff that's more directly on the news, like, say, the profile of Zelensky, that did seem to get picked up both in Ukraine and in Russia. I went to a screening recently of, um, there's a new Alexander Gibney documentary that's uh, about Khodorkovsky, Khodorkovsky. Yeah. It sort of also has this kind of like, montage quick trip through the Russian opposition. It's like, it's Alexander Navalny and Pussy Riot. And I think that that's kind of like generally how we like to assemble our Russian subjects as Americans. Like being against Putin is sort of the first qualifier and sort of fighting a noble but failed battle is usually ingredient. And when I was reading your book, like, None of the people who are profiled in your book fit that formula. They're all kind of defiantly looking at things a little differently. Like when you were starting to put together the book, like how did you decide like this person is the right kind of person for this portrait and this person is not? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you you picked up on that because that was the dynamic you described was really the animating idea of the book before it really even existed as a book in my mind or before it began to take shape. There was a different book your agent wanted you to pitch, which was the like hashtag Russian resistance. Right. Yeah. The heroic um, martyrs uh, resisting the Putin regime. No, no, to, to my agent's credit. But that certainly was the narrative I was using to describe Russia upon arrival, right? My mm. early stories fit that narrative exactly. I mean, there was something 
undeniably true about that narrative in the time I was doing it because there were huge protests in Moscow and other cities that were the big political story at the time. So, of course, they merited all the attention they got. But, you know, over the years that I was working in Russia as a journalist, I came to see that that dichotomy wasn't the most instructive one and and maybe not even the most interesting one for talking about Russia and relaying to readers what it's actually like to live and be there, right? That this dichotomy of Putin and all the mini Putins around him who carry out his, you know, venal and repressive orders versus this heroic cast of uh, outnumbered and very brave activists and opposition figures who resist that system. That's both a very true story. I don't want to deny in the least the existence of that dichotomy. That's an urgent and important one that deserves the attention it gets. But it's not, I don't think, the most instructive or, or as I say, interesting prism or kind of narrative lens for understanding Russia. It's the people in between who make up the vast majority of society, just like everywhere, who are actually... uh, defining the system and and, and kind of making the system in their image. They're both affected by the rules of the system, but are actually the ones who collectively make those rules. And understanding the compromises that people make to not just get by in that system, but also really advance in that system, while on the one hand professing or demonstrating a kind of outward loyalty to it, even at the same time, in their private or personal ways, looking to maneuver around or outsmart that system to achieve something that we, I think, ultimately would would say is a at least a recognizable, if not admirable, goal. And that whole complicated, thorny, ethical vortex was just a really interesting repertorial question to me, but also I thought a really uh, helpful or, or instructive way of making sense of Putin's Russia. And how did you find all of these people? Like, did you make like a master list of 50 possible subjects and, and see who was in? Yeah, I mean, the casting call, I guess, if that's the right way of thinking about it, I conducted with a few different criteria or factors all at once or overlaid on top of uh, one another. So first and foremost, I knew I wanted to study people or write about people who were in the thick of these kinds of compromises, who started out with understandable ambitions and aims, but in order to realize those along the way, had to decide how much or or not they were willing to cooperate with the system. So I knew that I wanted to be the kind of foundational question in the lives of my characters, but I also knew I wanted their choices ultimately to confound me in some way or, or to resist easy classification as either good or bad. It would be very easy to find people whose compromises were so obviously driven by venal and corrupt self-interest and cynicism as to make them, well, uninteresting to me, but also just purely bad in some uh, inarguable way. And at the same time, there are those who uh, were so kind of heroic or saintly in their compromises or resistance to compromise that there was no question about them being ultimately on the side uh, of the good, a kind of latter day, you know, Sakharov or, or some other hero of human rights. So I knew I didn't want those people. I wanted people who resisted my attempts to classify them as either good or bad in some definitive way. And then I knew I wanted to get a cross-section, or as much of a cross-section of Russia as I understood it, by having someone say from state media, in particular television, because television really is the most important medium of the Putin age, 
I knew I wanted someone from the Russian Orthodox Church, a priest who lived through and whose life reflected the way that the church under Putin has grown close again to power, the return of the so-called symphony, as it's known in Russia, between church legitimacy and, and state power. I knew I wanted someone from Chechnya because the two wars in Chechnya, especially the second war in the early 2000s, which coincided with Putin's rise to power, were so definitional as a kind of dark or macabre microcosm for uh, the rules and logic of Putin's Russia. I knew I wanted someone from culture and the arts to reflect how those spheres have fared or not under Putin, uh, another character who in some way reflected the questions of historical memory and the battles over history and the memory of Stalinism and the repressions. I settled on a number of historians who studied uh, the gulag and political repression. So I knew I wanted to get as much of a sweep of contemporary Russia as possible, right? I can't get everything and get everywhere, but I wanted what to me at least felt like a fair and, and interesting cross-section. And the last factor I wanted was geographic diversity. Because I live in Moscow, it would be very easy if I didn't try to end up with a book that was overpopulated with characters from Moscow, because that's just where I am. That's where I go out to dinner. That's where people tell me stories and introduce me to people. But I wanted to avoid that centrifugal force a bit to get to Chechnya or in the Gulag historians are out in Perm, a city in the Ural Mountains. I talked to young people in an oil town in Siberia. So I wanted to build in the really uh, vast and, and fascinating uh, just geographic diversity of Russia into the book. Do you think people are more honest with you because you're an American? Like I think of like an alien reporter parachuting into America and covering this election cycle. And I actually think people, you know, presuming that they felt comfortable that their views would uh, never reach their home planet, I think people would be more honest, probably. And you'd probably reveal some strange things about people's stated political beliefs and their stated relationship with the authoritarian political regime currently in power. I, absolutely. I think the alien effect worked uh, powerfully in, in my favor. And that's indeed how I think of myself as, as exiting, you know, the, landing on a cornfield in the UFO and, and coming out and trying to talk to the villagers. And I think that turns out to be a really fruitful repertorial mode. And someone like Constantine Ernst, he's the head of Channel One. He's the character who, through whose life I, I tell the story of media and particular television in the Putin age. He's a really interesting guy. He came of age during perestroika in the 80s, this short-lived period of civic and political opening uh, just before the Soviet Union collapsed. And you know, his first show on television, he hosted with long hair that ran over his shoulders in a black leather motorcycle jacket. And he talked about German art house cinema, you know, pretty weird fare, I'm sure, for late Soviet viewers. With time, he ascended to the very pinnacle of political and uh, media power in Russia by being the head of Channel One. He's effectively the unofficial uh, minister of propaganda for Putin's Russia. So it's a pretty interesting trajectory. And, and that early part of him, the self-described auteur, still lives very much inside of him. And that's an important part of his own self-image, that even though he is a very loyal and very competent true believer, I think also it's worth saying, in delivering and um, propagandizing the Putin state's uh, mission and overall rhetoric. Nonetheless, he still thinks of himself as a bit of a hooligan libel to put the kind of 
at least aesthetically sophisticated or culturally sophisticated on programming on Channel One you might not see elsewhere. So he thinks of himself as a complicated, multi-sided guy, and I think there is something to that. And only an alien, to continue the, the metaphor, or perhaps an alien more than an earthling, would be interested or willing to hear him out on those contradictions, right? By existing outside of the dynamic, the really pressurized and polarized dynamic that exists in Putin's Russia, this kind of alien reporter figure was what allowed me to do that with him and the other characters. And without it ever really being spoken about, I think they understood that. I have kind of a weird question for you as an alien reporter, which is, do you feel emotional about Putin? I think in America, we've pretty much realized over the last several years that it's almost impossible as an American reporter, much less an American political reporter, to not feel something about Trump, to not have a visceral reaction. And I guess I'm wondering, as someone who's kind of at a similar distance to Putin um, and to talking to people who know Putin and work with Putin, like, how does it make you feel? Definitely different than I feel about Trump, right? I'm, I've been back in the U.S. for a bunch of weeks now, and I, I come to the States often, and all my family's here, and you know, yeah. stay pretty connected, at least psychically, to what's happening in the uh, American politics and, and culture. So Trump gets me riled up in a way that Putin never has over the eight years that I've been uh, reporting on him and, and his system. And there's much more, I have much more personal and uh, psychological attachment or, or vulnerability to uh, Trump than I do to Putin. I mean, that's not to say I'm I'm a total kind of uh, cold-blooded cyborg when it comes to reporting on Putin's Russia, especially, say, I'm thinking of the reporting I've done in Chechnya for The New Yorker, which also then resurfaces in the book, where people face and live through terrible, unspeakable atrocities all the way up to essentially kidnapping and extrajudicial execution absolutely horrific, terrible crimes uh, that people suffer in an environment of near total impunity for those who carry them out. So that definitely makes me emotional, talking to the family members of people who have been kidnapped or killed. But that's different, I think, than thinking about Putin himself and the system he's created. Trump can anger me and uh, sort of get my emotions boiling, both in the particularity of him, like both in, in, in him as a kind of living, breathing human, but also what he's done to the country uh, in a way that I'm not sure in either of those points, Putin kind of gets my blood pressure up, not necessarily as an individual and not in the abstract as to kind of the political and um, civic space that he's created. I can get emotionally attached or, or um, emotionally affected by the particular victims of that system. Um, but I don't know if I have an emotional response to the system itself. I almost wonder if that's what makes us Americans or makes anyone um, attached to a country in that way is just that sense of sort of taking it personally um, and it's almost impossible for me to imagine moving to another country and taking the politics and the leader as seriously and getting as riled up as I sort of do as an American within America. And I guess I just, I, we don't think very much about like what 
you know, as we talk about patriotism, but what is it that actually like ties you to your own country, your own political system? Well, you know, it's interesting for me to think about what would I, what would my attitude be toward journalism if I were doing doing it back in, in the U.S.? And it, it would be different. I think it's a different job and a different task, even though that kind of, you know, basic Columbia Journalism School craft knowledge or craft approach might be the same. In Russia, I feel like my job is really to explain to people outside of Russia what's going on there and what it's really like, to pass along with as much fidelity and honesty as I can, while also just telling a good and entertaining story to get people the best sense, the best kind of simulacrum I can provide of what it's like to be in Putin's Russia and to navigate that system in various ways and in various fields. And I don't think that that's exactly the job of a journalist writing about what's going on in America for Americans. I think there's a civic responsibility that goes along with the job that people rightly feel about being kind of part of that civic ecosystem in which the citizenry needs to be informed and engaged so as to make uh, informed political decisions. Like, that's not really my task, right? So I don't know if that's an answer to your question exactly. But I, I do think that I would be a very different journalist if I were to be doing it in America, about America, for Americans. All right. Here's my last question. So you described as your mission in some ways as communicating what it's like to live in Putin's Russia uh, to American audience. What is the hardest part about that? Or what is the thing that you've never been able to get across or that people get confused about in translation when you try to describe that to the New Yorker's audience? I'm not sure if I managed to do this in the book fully or not, but I think and this is kind of a difficult task, right? Because you want to make your stories as interesting and compelling as possible. But this meta idea that I want to get across is actually how recognizably ordinary so much of life in uh, Putin's Russia is, a place that is, for lots of correct reasons, seen as um, foreign and uh, so different from the system and society that we know. But what really fascinated me about the stories of the characters in my book that I tried to get across is how, at least on the day by day, a lot of these kind of micro compromises that they made throughout their careers and lives weren't so different, didn't exist in this like other alien realm. But the choices they made are actually really recognizable to us, even if they occurred in a system and uh, a structure that feels apart from the one we know, that life is a lot less foreign and much more familiar and even universal than perhaps gets across in a lot of the Putin-centric political journalism about Russia. Josh, thank you so much. I don't want to make you uh, miss your flight to Russia. Uh, I really appreciate (laughs) you doing this. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The book is uh, Between Two Fires. Uh, I really recommend it, as I do all uh, all of Josh's New Yorker writing. Hey, thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks to my guest, Josh Yaffa. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Marina Clementi. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, and the wonderful sponsors who make this show possible, 
MailChimp and Pit Writers. See you next episode. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.